0: What's happening, people? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Richard Betts. He's the head of the Climate Impact Strategic Area at the Met Office, the lead author on several reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and a professor at the University of Exeter. There are few areas of science as contested as the climate. I wanted to speak to someone who has been researching this area for more than three decades to discover why there is so much disagreement over fundamental questions like whether the Earth's warming is actually caused by humans. Can we stop it? How accurate are the climate models? Should we switch to renewables? What does Richard think of Extinction Rebellion? How much are China to blame? And much more. In other news, this episode is brought to you by Pure Sports CBD. You might be anxious, stressed, or struggling to focus. Pure Sport's ultra-high-quality CBD can help to relax your mind and soothe your body, If you are struggling to switch off and sleep on a night time, their unwind blend is a great place to start. It's an all-natural mix of CBD and chamomile and lavender and vitamin B. It's an essential group that the body needs every day, which helps to reduce stress and enhance your mood. You'll find yourself falling asleep more easily on a night time, staying asleep better throughout the night, and waking up feeling more rested and revitalized in the morning. They also have pure CBD from 1500 milligrams all the way up to 3000. And they've got their mushroom mind and body blend, which is a powerful, invigorating and stimulating blend of six mushrooms that seek to enhance focus and also aid in relieving stress and anxiety. If you want to work on your energy during the day or your sleep on a nighttime, they have all the products that you need. Also, you can get 20% off all full priced items with the code MW20. Head to bit.ly/cbdwisdom. That's b.i.t.ly/cbdwisdom. Mw20 gets you twenty percent off all full-priced items, and they have international shipping, so no matter where you are, you can get the ultra high-quality CBD products direct to your door. In other other news, this episode is brought to you by Active Life RX. Get out of pain and reclaim your fitness with a company that I trust to look after my training and rehabilitation plan. If you have an injury or some sort of inhibition in the way that you move or a niggle that you've been working with for a little while, you do not need to put up with it. This is not the way that life is supposed to be, where you just collect injuries and then at the end of your days, you can no longer move and that's how life works. You have a team of doctors, athletic trainers, and coaches all waiting for you at Active Life who have the empathy, education, and experience to help you get the body and fitness that you want. Active Life have worked with over 10,000 people living on six different continents, including five CrossFit Games champions, professional baseball players, rugby players, and Olympic medalists. Whether you're going from the couch or from elite sport back into your training plan, Active Life are all that you need. It's not just that you need to deal with an injury or some sort of limitation in the way that you move, but the company will be able to get you into fitness, wellness, and beyond, no matter what your goals are. I absolutely adore working with them. And if you're prone to injury like I am sometimes, uh, I really, really recommend them head to bit.ly slash rxwisdom. That's bit.ly slash rxwisdom. You can have a free consultation call, have a chat with them, see what they can do for you. If you've got any problems, you can speak to them, see what their options are. bit.ly slash rxwisdom for a free consultation call today. But now it's time to learn about the state of climate science with Richard Betts. Richard Betts, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I wanted to try and have a conversation with you to work out how there is so much disagreement about climate science. People are prepared to accept that eating too much makes you fat. Well, not everyone, but most people that are saying do. Uh, smoking causes cancer, but climate science seems to probably be one of the most contested areas that I've seen. So for the people that aren't familiar with you and your background, what are your credentials and what do you do
1: so i'm a climate scientist at the met office which is the uk's national weather service and climate service and i'm also a professor at the university of exeter uh, so i train as a physicist uh, i have uh, a master's in meteorology and a phd in meteorology uh, and i've worked in the met office's climate research department the hadley center uh, for nearly nearly 30 years. So I've been working on the climate modelling and then bringing in observations and these days applying it to risk assessments to to understand what we might have to do in response to climate change.
0: And the intergovernmental panel on climate change, what is the role of that? What's the duty of that?
1: So, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm a lead author on one of the, well, several of the reports by the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. The role of that uh, is to uh, produce authoritative assessments of the science uh, of climate change in many different aspects. Uh, so the, the physical science, understanding the changes that are occurring, what we're expecting for the future, but also the, uh, the implications for human impacts, uh, biodiversity impacts and so on, and um, and the, uh, perhaps more challenging, even more challenging than all that, the, the different options um, for reducing climate change in, in terms of mitigation. Uh, the IPCC is, uh, is somewhat unique and it also links very closely to uh, to government. It's not a government document, but it is it's designed to inform government policy. So part of the process at the end is to work very closely with representatives of the world's governments uh, to To make sure that they are brought into the uh, the 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 science of it, and that's where it gets particularly interesting at the end the the end of the process. But it's a scientific document ultimately.
0: Talk to me about this tension that I brought up earlier on. Then, why is it the case that there can be so much contested about something that, to me, sounds like a science?
1: So I think what is more contested is actually uh, what the responses are and what is what the science is. Taken to imply, rather than the science itself. I mean, with any science, that there's there's always uh, somewhat different views. Uh, you can interpret uh, things in somewhat uh, different ways, especially when it's a big and complicated subject. But there's very few people, if any, that can test the basic fundamental uh, science of uh, climate change in terms of. Greenhouse gases exist. Carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. Greenhouse gases keep the Earth warmer than it would have been. Um, as other gases like methane, water vapor, they're also greenhouse gases. Hardly anybody disputes that. Uh, where the controversy comes in, some of it is in terms of what we are expecting for the future, in terms of how severe the future impacts will be if we keep building up more greenhouse gases into the in the atmosphere, particularly carbon dioxide. There's a wide range of possible outcomes of that. So people will tend to focus on either the worst case or the best case scenarios. But even beyond that, there's uh, the, the deepest controversies about what this really means, how urgent it is to to reduce uh, emissions. Should we just live with the changes that we are put into place? How severe will those be? So it's when you get further down that chain that the real controversies come in, I think.
0: Mm, how accurate are the climate models now? Because even I know that the weather guys get it wrong Sometimes, And if they can't predict what Newcastle or Austin, Texas is going to see tomorrow, whether it's going to rain or not, I imagine that all of the complexities rolled forward over 10 years globally must be kind of difficult.
1: Yeah, so work, working in the Met Office, uh, obviously the, the main a main role of the Met Office is to do the weather forecast day to day and week, week by week and so on. Uh, Uh, And and yes, you can't always predict a few days ahead exactly what's going to happen. We actually are pretty good now within within, within a few days, Uh, perhaps even a a week ahead in in some cases. But yeah, the atmosphere is very complex. So uh, you're trying to predict individual weather day to day and hour to hour. You can't do that more than a few days ahead. Beyond that, you're looking at trends. So you can look at general trends of whether it's going to be a generally warmer or milder winter, for example. But then you're looking kind of more about... The, the balance of likelihoods when you go beyond that you can't predict day by day year by year because there's so much complexity but what you can successfully uh, uh, look at is the longer term trends uh, of warming and general patterns of rainfall change and actually the uh, the early climate models that were produced in the 1960s and early 1970s they made uh, predictions which have now been shown to be accurate so it was predicted in the early 1970s that by the year 2000, the world would warm by 0.6 of a degree Celsius. That turned out to be reasonably accurate. The, the true figure was about half a degree, so it was a slight overestimate, but not too bad. Uh, and the warming has continued since then. So, so we've, we're now in a state where we are able to see that the early predictions of climate science are broadly coming true. We're now also seeing more extreme weather of some kinds, so uh, more extreme heat waves. Uh, in some areas, more extreme uh, rainfall, uh, more increased drought in other areas. Uh, that gets more difficult to tease out particular signals, but we are seeing those starting to change now. So broadly speaking, we we know that we we, we were saying the right things thirty or fifty years ago, uh, but we still can't really yes yeah, predict perfectly uh, for many years in the future because the the system is so complex and chaotic. So then becomes a, a a task of risk assessment rather than trying to make perfect predictions, you see.
0: Is CO2 the sort of fundamental underpinning or one of the main pillars of what you guys are looking at with regards to climate change?
1: CO2 is very important. It's not the most important greenhouse gas in terms of its effect on the climate at the moment because the most important gas is water vapour. We're not directly changing water vapor in terms of human activity, except for very small uh, amounts in areas where we're irrigating. Uh, So we're concerned about CO2 because that's the one that we're increasing the most in the atmosphere, and it stays in the atmosphere a very long uh, time—decades to centuries. If you uh, consider the if you you increase the amount of CO2, that increase will will be there for for decades or centuries uh, uh, ahead because it doesn't break down chemically in the atmosphere. So that's why the focus is on. Um, uh, is on C- CO2 but there's other gases like methane uh, and nitrous oxide as well are also greenhouse gases that we are increasing.
0: What's happening with water vapour?
1: So water vapour also changes uh, and that changes in response to climate change uh, so as the world warms uh, a warmer atmosphere can hold more water so water vapour can be a feedback mechanism uh, on climate change so it can it can actually increase the impact of uh, of co2 and other, other greenhouse gases you see
0: so it's like a catalyst let's say that there is a warming on the earth that increases the water vapor which permits more of a warming yeah yeah exactly yes yeah interesting what about the increased greening from co2 because this is something that i've heard about that the parts per million that you can get If you have greenhouses where farmers and horticulturalists are growing particular things, that they want their PPM to be through the ceiling and that we're nowhere near that amount, increased greening presumably would mean more plants. More plants would mean that they absorb more CO2, which would then bring the CO2 level down. So talk to me about how all of that pieces together.
1: Yeah. So that's something which I've worked on uh, myself and I've published on uh, several times. And in fact, some of my PhD was on that exact issue, actually. So, yes, uh, when you put more CO2 in the atmosphere, that enhances photosynthesis, the process through which plants grow. So plants uh, will take up some of the CO2 from the atmosphere uh, through photosynthesis. That's a negative feedback. So actually, if that didn't happen we would have warmed the Earth even more because we, the CO2-wise would have been even greater than it has been. So we would have seen probably double the amount of uh, uh, warming than we had seen. CO2 is also taking up in the ocean to some extent uh, as well. So that is an extremely important uh, process. And uh, so it is part a large part of the reason of why we're seeing greening of the Earth. Where you can see from the satellite that some areas of the Earth have denser vegetation cover, especially kind of semi-arid regions where uh, there's there's, limited water. So higher CO2 means plants need less water um, so they can can green up more. There's other reasons for the greening that we're seeing change in land use. Also, the warming of the climate itself uh, in the very cold regions, simply warmer temperatures mean you get longer growing seasons. So there's many factors behind the greening, but the CO2 uh, is one of them. The reason that's also important for the future is we 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 don't know for sure whether that will continue to the same extent in the future. Uh, You know, from laboratory studies that this uh, the the impact of CO2 on on photosynthesis, it kind of it kind of flattens off at high levels of CO2. Um, But we also know that higher temperatures, as well as leaving a longer growing season in cold regions that can have a detrimental effect in hot regions. So the key question is, will this beneficially affect the CO2 continue into the future? Uh, We need to do more large-scale experiments in real ecosystems with high levels of CO2 to really be sure about that. So again, it's an open question. So when you're considering risk assessments, you need to account for a range of possibilities of how CO2 will affect affect reading in the future.
0: How have you been able to tease apart the industrial impact on CO2 in the atmosphere?
1: So... uh, we know for sure that the uh the co2 rise is, is entirely man made because the uh, the amount that we're putting in the atmosphere from fossil fuel burning is way more than the amount that we're seeing uh, building up in, in the atmosphere uh about double uh, in fact so simply by conservation of mass you know we we're, we're putting 10 billion tons of carbon into the atmosphere every year from from burning fossil fuels another one or two billion from deforestation The amount of buildup in the atmosphere is only equivalent to about five or so billion tonnes of carbon per year. So simply by the the arithmetic there, uh, uh, we we know that what the increase is due to the uh, industrial impacts, it's been offset by the natural uh, impacts of uh, uptake of CO2 by natural vegetation.
0: How do you know that that wasn't just a a trend that was occurring and that's now been continued?
1: Well, you we, 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 we can look back uh, in, in, in time over from getting data from ice cores. Uh, if, you, if you drill down into into ice layers on the layers of ice that have been built up for thousands of years and examining the bubbles of air trapped in the ice as the snow fell uh, and trapped air within it and then turned to ice, uh, you've got a record of the atmosphere going back thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. So you can analyse that and see what, see what the CO2 concentration was. And before we started burning fossil fuels in the Industrial Revolution, the CO2 levels were hovering around about 280 parts per million for many, many thousands of years. Uh, and they did go up and down in the, in the more distant past. You can infer it from fossil Records It did change naturally in the past in response to very large-scale changes in global ecosystems, but in a much slower rate than what we've seen in recent recent decades. The rate of CO2 increase is just way more than anything's been seen in the previous paleo uh, climate record.
0: I heard something about the Milankovitch cycle, which is this sort of climate wobbling up and down in temperature. We're going up and down, and this is part of a mm-hmm. small uptrend before we then go further down how much legitimacy do you see in that
1: yeah so that, uh, that, that again, that's, that that's that's perfectly uh, a good piece of climate science that uh, uh, that uh, colleagues of mine have, have worked on for many many decades or more uh, so the uh, so yeah this the 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 ice ages are generally linked to these milankovitch cycles the change in the earth's orbit and the and the, the, the the tilt of the earth um so that that's uh, yeah an external forcing on the climate system we we, we we call it so change in the earth's energy balance or the patterns of how the energy from the sun is reaching the earth occur due to these changes in earth's orbit and the and the, the tilt of the earth that can lend these kind of feedback processes like with the carbon cycle which mean that yeah as vegetation changes over the world it can take up more co2 for some periods or release more co2 as you come back out of the cycle and this is all all part of our understanding of how a, a feedback process in the climate system. So the re- the reason that this is important is because that then lets us see when we're looking at how we're warming the world with Earth other forcings, like human-caused increase in CO2, how feedbacks may then amplify or dampen that uh, in, in the future. So it all links together as our understanding of the climate system.
0: What's the current projections that you guys have got with regards to temperature and CO2? I don't know, let's say that we don't make too many changes and kind of things were to continue as they are at the moment what happens to mm. temperature and co2 concentrations
1: so if we carried on um, as as we are uh, we would we would see global warming of anywhere between 2 and uh, possibly up to 4 degrees celsius by the end of this century it's very hard to be precise because we don't know the strength of all the feedbacks so the best guess is probably somewhere below 3 degrees warming by the end of the century if if we carry on Uh, as we are with currently implemented policies on energy and uh, and land use just to interject Uh, there richard what when you Mm -hmm. say
0: um on average when when a climate scientist says on average an increase in this Mm -hmm. how's that figure worked out is that an aggregate across all areas around the globe because presumably certain areas will increase by more certain areas will increase by less how do you come to that figure
1: yeah, exactly. So, so this, this this is all done uh, with, with climate models, which are essentially the same models that we use for the weather forecast. So these are models uh, based on mathematical equations, which represent our understanding of the physics of the climate system. Uh, so uh, we, we understand the workings of the atmosphere pretty well. Uh, so we're able to uh, make these calculations which can explain past changes in climate and make projections of the future as i said earlier you can't make perfect predictions uh, there's a certain amount of uncertainty but if you compare the models with what they've done in the past and compare with what we've observed in the past in terms of past warming you can actually narrow the uncertainties to some extent uh, so so these projections i've just talked about are based on uh, a, a, an assumption of uh carrying on emitting as we currently are as as you you posed the question but also how that plays out in terms of the response of the climate system linked to what we understand from past changes
0: yeah so we've got this water vapor as one of the examples you have this feedback mechanism so you have a first order effect which is an increase of co2 then you have a second order effect which is an increase of water vapor then a third order effect which is co2 in response to the water vapor and so on and so on and yeah so i mean yeah that the computers that you've got running these models must be pretty big and pretty sophisticated because you can already begin to see how when you put that across an entire globe, just how many degrees of separation you are away from what you're trying to do in what, a eighty years time to try and arrive at these sort of figures.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, so they, they, these models are, are, are vast. Uh, there uh, is two million lines of Fortran code. We still use Fortran, which a lot of computer scientists uh, uh, f- f- find amusing. Because it's a very old computer language, but it is actually it's a very well used language in, 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 in climate science, because one of the important things is many people work on these models over, over years and decades. Uh, so it's got to be. Uh, a particular computer language, which which it helps with collaboration, is going to be very clear and structured. Uh, so there's dozens, maybe even hundreds of people have worked on the Met Office model uh, over the years. So so it's yeah two million lines of Fortran, which represent the mathemat- mathematical equations which represent the physics of the climate system. These calculations are done for tens thi- tens of thousands of points across the Earth's surface and many many layers in the atmosphere. So yeah, huge huge models which take weeks to actually do the calculations. In fact,
0: that's crazy. I Mm. had heard something uh, to do with where temperatures are detected, temperature changes. How do you ensure that there isn't a um, discrimination with regards to where temperature changes are measured? Let's say that you take them from particular areas and not from others or areas are more Mm. represented. I'm going to guess that this is something you guys have to account for as well.
1: Yes, exactly. So, so uh, colleagues colleague of mine uh, in the office and in other institutions across the world have, have done a lot of work on this. Um, because the, the, there's thousands, tens of thousands of data points and weather information taken across the world every hour, probably even every minute these days, actually. Uh, and bringing that together is, is done routinely for monitoring weather and helping to do the weather forecasts. Uh, and it's now done very systematically across the world and there's quite high standards for that if you want to look at climate change in the past if you go back a few decades the quality is very good we've got satellite data as well which also helps give a big picture but if you go back you know in the 80s and 70s you've got satellite data if you go back before that the The network of weather stations across the world is less systematic. Um, We've got measurements taken from aircraft and ships and weather balloons as well. But once you go back to the start of the early 20th century, you've got much more sparse data. And then beyond that, you're much more limited. And uh, sometimes, in many cases, you have to be very careful about whether this data is reliable, especially if weather stations have have perhaps even shifted, Uh, like a particular town has moved its weather station from one side of town to the other. You've got local effects like an urban area will generate uh, its own temperature impacts, and so on. You might've had a forest cut down a wind, that kind of thing. So you have to account for these by cross-checking, uh, the weather stations in, in, in certain areas. Uh, there's a lot of quality control goes into that now. Um, and, uh, so it's not it's not a trivial matter you can't just look at the raw station data because you will get a very misleading uh, picture you have to do this kind of cro- uh, cross checking uh, to make sure you get a, a clear and, and accurate uh, picture of change over time
0: what happens if we get to the end of the century and we're less than 3 degrees but more than 2 degrees warmer
1: so uh I would say we, we will probably have initiated uh, some uh, some severe long-term sea level rise impacts at the very least because uh, it seems that, well, mountain glaciers are already melting because we, we've warmed the world already, so we're already locking ourselves into uh, putting more meltwater into the oceans and therefore more sea level rise. We're seeing sea, sea level rise happening already. Uh, we may well have initiated uh, some further long-term uh, impacts of uh, melting of part of ice sheets in greenland uh, and uh, antarctica uh, if we keep warming below 3 degrees perhaps we won't uh, kick off the the worst of these but i think exceeding 2 degrees does risk uh, some major impacts like that and also we will have changed weather patterns uh, in many parts of the world uh, some of the hotter parts of the world which are already kind of almost on on, on the edge uh, of what uh, humans can live with day to day will we'll be going past areas uh, past uh, Times of extreme heat stress for humans and so on. So places like the Indian subcontinent, parts of Africa, uh, a two-degree world would probably expose about a billion people uh, to extreme heat stress for more than ten days uh, uh, a year. We've, we've calculated. So the hotter parts of the world would be seeing severe impacts, and then we'd be seeing impacts on biodiversity. The colder regions of the world, where a lot of the ecosystems and species of animals and plants are adapted to uh, to cold uh, temperatures they won't be seeing the cold temperatures they're used to so we'll be seeing massive impacts on biodiversity and and human life there as well actually
0: mm. in terms of
1: you know, ways ways of life which you know, cultures which are adapted to cold temperatures you see
0: what about if we get closer toward 4 degrees is there a step change that occurs there or is it just more of the same horrors
1: it's it's very hard to say whether there's any kind of particular step change you often hear you know uh, uh, about you know critical thresholds and so on you can't yeah, really like run
0: away cyclical natures of stuff
1: yeah so so you, you can't put your finger on any any particular level of global warming that would that would that would definitely uh kick off any kind of uh chain reaction but the more uh, warming we put into the system the more we risk these large-scale changes like a, a, a irreversible uh, melting of the Greenland ice sheet for example which would take centuries to millennia to completely melt away but you can reach a point of no return with the Greenland ice sheet where as it melts the surface of the ice sheet comes down to a warmer temperature in the lower atmosphere and that sort of feeds on itself. Just,
0: th- just explain that to me.
1: So the Greenland ice sheet uh, is very thick it's miles thick uh, so as the surface of that uh, melts under higher temperatures, the surface comes down lower into the atmosphere and the lower part of the atmosphere is warmer than the higher atmosphere. So you could bring the surface of the Greenland ice sheet into an area of warmer uh, temperatures and that could mean the warming and the melting could could, could feed on itself, you see. Uh, so that's, yeah. that's so one y- of the irreversible changes.
0: By being high, you're actually protected and refrigerated and you have a, a, a frozen area which covers over an area that perhaps would be even now prone to melting but it's kind of it's almost yeah. protected over the top
1: yeah yeah uh, exactly that's right so and there's other potential kind of tipping points in the climate system which 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 uh, which may exist but we don't know exactly where so one very famous one uh, is the uh, amazon rainforest tipping point where uh, some early models of ours uh, projected a very severe warming and drying in the amazon region um most models don't project such a severe drying now, it has to be said. So, so that's actually something of a, of a relief uh, to some extent. However, most models do project something of a drying and warming in that region. And that means that uh, the, the other impact on the Amazon is from deforestation. So the real threat from uh, to the Amazon probably comes from a combination of deforestation and climate change. So this kind of milder drying of the Amazon, that means that any impacts of deforestation would, would be worse. Uh, because de- deforesting the the Amazon means that the edges of the forest dry out and become more susceptible to fire, so it's more complex than simply a climate driven dieback that the older models showed. It's more linked between deforestation and climate.
0: Is the Amazon benefiting from increased greening from CO two? Is that helping it to grow back more quickly? uh large parts
1: of it at the moment yes uh, some parts of it no some parts of it are, are now so uh so warm and and getting drier and are becoming impacted by deforestation and degradation that they're not benefiting uh but large parts of it are so a key question for us uh is how long will that continue in the future uh, we we've we recently initiated uh well i say we Colleagues of mine in Brazil are setting up a major experiment in the Amazon rainforest to look at exactly this: uh, will the rainforest remain resilient, and will it take take up more CO two as CO two levels uh, are increased? So that's a big piece of science that, that needs to be done to help us, uh, you know, narrow down the uncertainty in our models.
0: Talk to me for a second. I want to try and get into the um, philosophical underpinning of what climate, not necessarily climate science, but what. Um, having a climate-conscious worldview is actually trying to achieve, whether or not it's trying to keep the planet the same, whether it's trying to make it as hospitable for humans as possible, whether it's trying to um, keep a hold of biodiversity, whether it's, as my friend and past guest Charles Eisenstein said, just trying to retain the beauty of the planet as much as we can. What do you see as the goal of whatever you would refer to it, climate conservation, perhaps. Um, what What's the actual outcome that we're aiming for?
1: So, I mean, th- that probably comes down to something of a personal view. So I can only offer my personal view on this and others will have a different, different view. But for, but for me, uh, it, it's uh, from, the, from the point of view of humans, it's about making sure that we, we don't make our environment, uh, you know, uncomfortable and therefore and ultimately impossible for ourselves in, in, in certain places. Uh, it stands to reason that we have evolved uh, under a certain range of climates in the past. We've adapted our societies to certain local climates. Uh, we are actually fairly adaptable. Humans live in a wide range of, of places across the world. Uh, so to some extent, it's, it can be about keeping the climate, what we're used to, in a particular location, because we we've built cities based on our own local climates um we uh, but but in in other cases it's about making sure that we don't go beyond what is actually tolerable for people in the the very very hot uh uh, parts of the world where there's there's an upper limit to what we can cope with as as humans or at least what we can kind of function within so that that that, that's part of it it's about making sure that we don't make things inconvenient or impossible (laughs) for ourselves but also i think there's there's more of a uh you you can imagine there's a, a, a moral uh uh, view on on our responsibility to other species as well. Other species on the Earth are adapted to certain uh, local climates. Uh, we're changing that, uh, so a lot of people, including myself, would would regard it as unethical to uh, to, to make life impossible for for other species and uh, ecosystems. And uh, th- and there is some uh, beauty in the Earth that you can appreciate. You know, in cold regions, glaciers. Uh, we we love a cold. I love a cold winters. Uh, morning for example uh, i i do feel sad that the, uh, the, the the cold weather we used to see in the 1980s happens much less frequently now although it's it's, it's inconvenient but i did like a nice cold winter you know so uh, so those kind of changes they can There's an emotional aspect to that uh, as well as cultural aspects as but as well as also you know human practical and survival aspects and survival aspects for other species so a whole range of things
0: yeah it's an interesting one. I definitely see mm. us as stewards of the Earth. I think that as the only ones aboard spaceship Earth that aren't just cargo but we're crew as well, we have mm. some sort of moral obligation, I think to you know act well uh, as guardians of of the other creatures and the diversity that we've kind of inherited. Um, I wonder whether I wonder how much there is a price that needs to be paid. If you could almost see it as a a balancing act between having an advanced civilization that is able to bring people out of poverty, that is able to raise living standards, that is able to access degrees of health and wellness and flourishing and economic value and so on and so forth, whether... Well, presumably, I'll put it to you, is there a sacrifice that needs to be made in order for us to get that? Presumably by trying to restrict carbon emissions, what we're aiming to do is have our cake and eat it too. It's We want to be able to live in a technologically advanced world, but we also don't want these negative externalities that we have from uh, the climate being wrecked.
1: Yeah, and, and th- 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 this th- this is why it gets so con- uh, controversial because people have different views about where this balance uh, should lie. Uh, so, yes, we we want to uh, have yeah a, a, a good and happy and fulfilling and comfortable life for everybody on Earth, uh, and uh, that requires uh, yeah a certain level of living standards which which we have historically relied on fossil fuels uh, and the use of the land. Uh, to achieve, but now we're recognizing that the way we've done that in the past is ultimately not sustainable in the long term, but at the same time you can 't rip that away immediately because we rely on it so much. so the phrase just transition gets used so it 's about how uh, where uh, people uh, individuals societies uh, you know, towns and cities and even countries that rely on the old way of doing things uh, how they can transition to a more sustainable way of doing things without disadvantaging people so if you, so for example this, this whole communities rely on coal mining um, if you just shut down coal mining as happened in the uk in the 80s it has devastating effects on the local community so you have to find ways to to get get through that and make sure that people have other other sources of employment uh, and you don't just rip the heart out of a community and replace it with nothing else so it's not a tri- trivial problem to deal with
0: i learned that cheap energy is one of the best ways to raise people in developing countries out of poverty and that fossil fuels are one of the best ways to get them that. Is there a a tension between trying to reduce fossil fuel use and also still trying to get developing countries up to an acceptable living standard?
1: So there is a tension there and the the other tension of course is the the other effects of of, of fossil fuels such as local air pollution and so on. Uh, So again from the in the uh, in the UK, uh, we experienced in the you know in the fifties and sixties incredible uh, air pollution incidents. My dad, who uh, was from the Black Country, would remember horrendous smogs uh, where it was just desperately unhealthy to be outside, uh, and, uh, and a lot of people died of you know, respiratory uh, related problems and so on. Uh, so that was all to do with local air pollution. The UK is sort of you know by getting out of so much coal burning. Has reduced those problems. Those problems still exist in other parts of the world as well. Um, so, yes, there is this tension, uh, as, as you said. But there's also the other effects of uh, air, air quality and so on. You need, need to take into account as well. Yeah, I that's why we talk about like kind of co-benefits. Is actually the phrase that gets used. There's, a co- there's other benefits of reducing fossil fuel use beyond the climate impact, like improving air quality and so on.
0: Yeah, but then there would also be kind of co-costs, which is yeah the reduction of access to energy. its its One of the things that strikes me is that we're kind of fortunate that the planet is as small as it is. I know the Earth's massive. I know that it's big, mm. but we can fly around it in the space of 24 hours pretty much now if you're on the right plane. And if the planet was even bigger, you would have so many different interest groups, so many different nation states. I mean, it's already hard to coordinate stuff at the moment with different actors and different agendas and so on. But let's say that Earth was able to sustain itself at the way that it was, but it was maybe twice as big, which would be an awful lot more landmass, an awful lot more humans, an awful lot more nation states, even wider varieties in terms of the uh, climates and the countries and so on and so forth. Um, trying to get, trying to find a middle ground where you have every different nation's interests aligned. You know, we've recently had COP26 in Glasgow. And you know, f- for all that countries can go there and say that we want to do this, each country has its own different agenda about where it is, what its desires are for growth, for economic policy, for everything. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I think um, we- we're probably quite fortunate that we have, although it's massive, a smaller sample size of planet to work with.
1: Yeah, that's, quite a, that's a very interesting point, which I, I, I'd never heard before. Yeah, so you're, you're, uh, uh, yeah, think things could be even worse, is what you're, what, you're, what you're saying. It could be even uh, more uh, complex. Yeah, you you could yeah, need yeah, fifty
0: yeah. million lines of code in order to be able to work out what's yes. going on.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an interesting one, but the, but the complexity of the of the issue and um, you know and the negotiations at
0: COP and so on, it
1: it is a huge uh, a huge problem because uh, yeah. Governments have responsibilities to their own people and economies and so on. and and yes, they they want to, on the one hand, keep protect their populations from the worst impacts of climate change. But they don't want to uh, just radically change everything, uh, especially uh, the developing world, which uh, is seeing that we' in the developed world have benefited from all this
0: stuff historically, they
1: uh, are, are, they want they want some support from us. Uh, at least making this transition, this just transition I was talking about earlier.
0: Well, yeah, because they're still playing catch-up to try and get their living standards to where they see the West already benefiting from it, whether that be because we got there first or we have slightly preferable climates or whatever economic policies. Mm. And because of the current state of the climate, you could see it as these bourgeois Western bastards coming in and telling you that wagging their finger at you and saying, no, 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 you need to be along with us. And you said, well, we're, we're not in the same boat here. We have completely different living standards and uh, economic structure than you do. So making developing countries sing to the same hymn sheet as a developed country is going to cause even more disparity.
1: Yeah, that's exactly at the heart of a lot of the negotiations that were having negotiations that were happening in the last couple of weeks uh, in glasgow at cop 26 and the other aspect of course is the fact that uh, uh, these countries along with everywhere else are living with the effects of climate change that are already happening so they've already warmed the world by over a degree celsius we're already seeing some changes in extreme weather we're already seeing an increase in sea levels in some cases so the more vulnerable parts of the world which which uh, happen to be uh, often the countries which have contributed less to the issue are now asking for support in dealing with that, putting in place adaptation measures. There's a strong argument comes from some quarters, oh, we should just adapt our way out of climate change or at least adapt our way through it. Uh, but you need to actually put things in place to do that adaptation. And again, it's the same countries that that need support on uh, you know, getting away from fossil fuels and deforestation that need support in adaptation uh, because they happen to be in the hotter parts of the world and perhaps low-lying countries and so on, so again, this is another big issue that was addressed at that COP twenty-six, but not fully resolved.
0: Did you? What was your? What's your synopsis? What was your sort of summary of that? I mean, I'm I'm going to guess this is kind of like you've got a uh, illustration of Glastonbury behind you. COP twenty-six must be a little bit like the Glastonbury for uh, for climate scientists, but just maybe a little bit less fun. Um, what's your how did you feel that that went based on sort of what you know and what you can tell us
1: well the, uh, the yeah that's a very, another very good analogy actually the, 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 these climate conferences are huge there's so many things going on uh the, at the heart of it, the pyramid stage, if you, if you like, is, is the negotiations. That's what everyone, the rest of the world, sees. Uh, where this, the countries are negotiating about which what emissions they will uh, they will they will cut uh, and how, and will they support each other in adaptation. But then around that, the rest of the festival, the other stages in the festival, there's also this many different, even more delegates are, are having conversations amongst themselves, linking to the negotiations updating uh, ourselves on each other's work on climate science, what this means for policy, hearing from policymakers about what they need. So it's a big sort of meeting of minds around these negotiations. So there's two different levels to it. The the outcome of the negotiations, uh, I would probably say uh, it's not as good as we would have hoped, uh, well not as good as we needed to keep ourselves on track to meet the Paris agreement, targets of limiting warming well below two degrees. It didn't achieve that yet, but it was a good step along the way. A lot of positive things did happen. There were some good agreements on uh, reducing deforestation, Uh, actually specifically identifying coal uh, as an issue that needs to be addressed. There was an aim to get countries to uh, commit to getting out of coal completely. That wasn't achieved, but there was a a commitment to reduce coal use. There were other things on adaptation, again, not going as far as was hoped, but uh, more than was feared so it's a halfway house really uh beyond that the uh the i think having this, this the, the the opportunity of networking and sharing the information sharing the science um that was reasonably positive i think there's a good a shared understanding building as well which i think that will help inform the next cop in a year's time where more needs to be done on the negotiations is it annual it is yes there's one every year except for last year uh, when there wasn't one because of uh, uh, the pandemic, so the one from last year, Glasgow was supposed to happen last year, basically. Yeah.
0: Has there ever been one which has attracted as much media attention as the one that we've just seen? Because I, you could have told me that this happened once every five years, and I would have believed you
1: yeah so th- this was this was particularly prominent uh especially in the uk uh, because we were the host nation um but because also it was it's been 5 years since the the last prominent one which was in paris so the paris agreement which i mentioned a few minutes ago was at a previous cop which was uh very prominent because that was the first time where there was an actual agreement between all countries uh, to take action on climate change that had never been achieved before in previous cops so that was very prominent and also the, the ambition which had been uh, uh, talked about in previous COPs before Paris was to limit warming to two degrees global warming. The ambition became to try to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. That was another key thing in Paris. So the Paris one was as probably as prominent, almost as prominent as, the, as, as as the Glasgow one. But they're not always as prominent as this is. That's for sure. Yeah.
0: What's the enforcement mechanism if some nation state doesn't abide by what they're doing? If China just tells you what you want to hear, but then decides to just crack on spunking loads of CO two out?
1: So that so. Uh, the the, uh, the commitments can be monitored there's, there's processes in place to sort of check on how emissions are actually uh progressing that can be uh that, that, that can be uh, uh that can be audited that uh, the deforestation can be monitored by satellites so the data uh is there you, you can measure how much the co2 is uh building up in the atmosphere you can see where uh, where emissions are, are are coming from um but in terms of actual enforcement, like with any international uh, agreements, uh, it's actually, fundamentally, it's down to almost peer pressure between the countries, uh, mm-hmm. essentially. Uh, you know, there's, there's no international law as such. It's basically countries. Uh, Gentlemen's agreement. It, 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 exactly. Yes. Yeah. So it's, so that, so it's like, like any of these things. It's about the community, you know, the, the, the community, uh, you know uh, encouraging it's, itself and policing itself, really.
0: There's another thing to consider. Uh, I wanted to start talking about China in a second, but we're at least not in open disputes with most of the countries on the planet. Can you imagine how much more difficult it would be if we were seeing some of the uh, nation divides uh, in terms of territories from the 1900s, World War One, World War Two, Cold War, lack of communication between different countries, and we had some climate challenges to overcome because you would there's no way that you get in coordination in fact it's perhaps because of the tragedy of the commons it's maybe even in the interests of particular countries that might be able to weather the storm of climate change better to be able to utilize their uh industrial machinery to just try and get themselves as far ahead because they're still in conflict with whoever else it might be kind of fortunate that we're not at war at the moment
1: Yes, it is. Uh, I mean, although another aspect of this is the you know, climate change being an extra stress on on, on certain countries and so on. So, uh, again, this is one of the particularly controversial issues is about the role of uh, climate change in inter- international security and wars and so on. You you can't really pin any specific wars on climate change as such, but but uh, uh, you can start to see that. Um, it doesn't help when you get more extreme weather in a region which is already uh, under tension uh than an additional natural disaster such as crop failures and and that kind of thing it's It's not helping at all, you know so that's a further thing to to bear in mind in the future.:
0: I saw a stat saying that China contributes thirty percent of the entire world's CO2. Do you know how true that is
1: uh in terms of emissions it's it's the largest um, uh, emitter uh so uh, they, they 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 do have a huge huge population and they have uh you know ramped up their energy uh, production in the last 20 years uh, as they've gone on, undergone a rapid uh, development so uh, so yes uh, Ch- china is the biggest uh, emitter uh, as a country it's not the biggest emitter per person uh, because they have a very large uh, population the emissions per person are still smaller than the usa for example
0: oh uh, that's interesting uh,
1: Yeah, but in terms of the actual emissions, they're 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 the
0: largest. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So I had um, a conversation the other day, which really opened my eyes to this. So I I'm quite concerned about China. Um, I I think that sort of globally, it's it's a threat that we need to be taking far more seriously. And I started talking about this particular statistic that it's the largest single contributor of CO two on the planet, and one of uh, the the person that I was speaking to. richard decided to say well yeah that may be true but you have to also think that one of the benefits that we've seen in somewhere like the uk is that we've outsourced a lot of our industrial production to china so the fact that you can then point to china and say look at all of the stuff that you're throwing out into the atmosphere is and we can stand on a high horse and say look at how green we are it's facilitated by the fact that a lot of our production is now being outsourced there that we're getting electronics and machine parts and so on and so forth from that country. Yeah,
1: that's exactly right. So when, when you're uh, looking at a country's claims on how well it's reduced its own emissions, so for the UK, for example, uh, monitors its, uh, our own emissions. We were the first country to put in place the Climate Change Act, so a legal obligation on the government uh, to reduce emissions. Uh, and the Climate Change Committee, this independent advisory body, will track um, the UK's progress uh, against its commitments. And you have to be uh, very clear about whether the emissions reductions being quoted are the total emissions that the nation is responsible for, including what what's called offshoring. Yeah, what, what we've been uh, what we're buying from other countries elsewhere in the world, which includes China, but other places as well. Uh, uh, are you including that? Or are you just not talking about domestic emissions, what we're emitting? locally uh, so you're absolutely right that you have to look at the bigger picture we're responsible ultimately for uh, emissions elsewhere in the world or what as we well consume as, as well as
0: what we create yeah 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 that's yes, um yeah yeah i found i mean I, understanding stuff like that i find very interesting i think that mm. you know having that in the back of your mind when i can still be concerned about china but having that as a, a little bit of a um a caveat was was interesting does it does it annoy you that climate science sometimes gets forgotten or tarnished due to crazy stunts and protests that grab attention
1: uh, yeah that's an interesting one it can um so I, I i think that some things can be unhelpful if if they're you yeah, annoying a large part of the uh yeah the, the population when people are uh you know, particularly if they're like obstructing public transport or something. I, I personally think that is sending out the wrong message. You know, I, I'm an advocate of public transport and and, and cycling and that kind of thing. Um, so when some people have, have used public transport <laughs> to get their message across, uh, I think that was the wrong target. A bit self defeating. Uh, yeah, yeah. The uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, I can see how keeping the issue in the news uh, is a useful thing uh, as well uh the I mean when people are breaking the law, you know, and when people are perhaps uh, even potentially endangering other people, then I get yeah, you know, I I'm not, not happy with that. Um so the you know if you if 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 you go as far as yeah. Something's can some things can be counterproductive, so you have to be quite quite careful about what what, what, what you're doing, I I, I think it's uh, it's a very difficult area. I would much rather uh, that uh, say that the that the media news media for example um gave prominence to to, to climate science uh in a in an unbiased way uh, one of the protests last year was particularly targeting certain uh, sections of the media wasn't it and the reasons that the protesters gave for that was that they still saw that this uh in certain sections of the media they they were saying didn't give a, a true picture uh I would not rather the media uh, covered climate change in a in a, a good, unbiased, fact based way, so that people then didn't have to feel they had to take this kind of radical action.
0: Yeah, I um I read an article a while ago by Scott Alexander from Slate Star Codex. It's called "The Toxoplasma of Rage." It's very interesting, and he talks about the fact that activists or anybody that's trying to push forward a a narrative or an agenda. Um, they have a balancing act to make that the more outlandish and gregarious stunts that they can do, they do capture more attention, but inevitably they polarize opinion a lot more too. Uh, On the flip side of that, the stunts, which are perhaps much more persuasive and well-meaning and rational, don't capture as much attention, but don't cause the polarity and also don't... um, that it, it's easy to get people on side. So there is a payoff that you need to decide between exposure and impact or exposure and persuasion. And I, from my side, based on what I see, I think it, it feels to me like climate activism is sacrificing a lot of persuasion for impact. And I think that that being drawn back now, you may be right, maybe that could be assisted through other channels. But from your Uh, seat in the middle of the climate debate, what would you do if you were someone whose job it was to try and improve the messaging? Uh, You know, it's not good enough to just put Excel spreadsheets up. Like it needs to be engaging. There has to be a reason for people to take care. But also this this undertone that you, because you drive a car to work, you should feel bad about what you're doing. I don't think that that I don't think shaming people into compliance is the right way to go about it either. So, what would you, what are your thoughts on the messaging at the moment and moving forward?
1: Yeah, I I I, I agree. Nobody likes to be told what to do, uh, and nobody likes to be shamed about what they what they're doing. Um, I much prefer things which are you know more positive and and creative, and you and you can find things which are. Uh, Attention-grabbing and and, and created a more positive. An example here locally: uh, some local activists um, uh, last year uh, hired a load of road cones and they put in an unofficial cycle path uh, on one of the main roads in Exeter that goes to the hospital. So they just put this cycle path and it was completely unauthorized. And then they just sort of sat by and they and they watched and they filmed uh, people using it to see. Well, first of all, to see if people would use it, and they did see that. Hospital staff, doctors and nurses who cycle to work were using this this cycle path. Um, half a day later, the, the council then took it away because it wasn't authorised. Uh, but I think I, I quite like that as a more kind of constructive thing. It didn't do anybody any harm, uh, and it, it illustrated the fact that the cycle path there would be really useful. Um, so I would like to see more of that kind of thing. Yeah, more more, more positive, uh, imaginative, and, and, and creative things that uh, that really are helpful. Uh, rather than rather rather than negative that's
0: my personal view, one of the things that I definitely notice in myself. you brought up the cycle lane, so in Gosforth, which is where I live in Newcastle, mm. the uh two lane high street uh, sorry the two per side so a four lane high street was reduced down to a two lane high street to accommodate a cycle lane. Mm. The traffic on that now is is disgusting it's absolutely awful. anybody that tries to mm. get from the great great north roads down into Newcastle knows what i I'm talking about um there's something there's something about that that is a little bit uncomfortable because you observe the inconvenience that you suffer from a front row seat. You know that if you're stuck between three p m and five thirty p m or at any time during the morning. On that road that it's going to take you 10 minutes to do a mile and that's going to annoy you and you knew you'd also remember a time not long ago when it didn't cause that long I think creating a grand narrative creating a more cohesive understanding around why these measures get put in place so let's say that adding a cycle lane helps to reduce carbon emissions by whatever percent I don't know that I don't know that I just see what broadly to me looks like a mostly unused cycle lane and a ton of traffic that's tailed back. So what I think is missing, first off, I would suggest to climate activists to um, dial back the amount of shame that gets put onto people. I don't think that that's an effective strategy at all. I think it just makes people kind of resent whatever it is that you're doing. But uh, a broader understanding of the direction that we're trying to move toward and how individual actions contribute to that. I think that that's important because it connects the sacrifice that you make. If someone said to me, if I was able to feel good about the fact that I know I need to set off 10 minutes earlier to get to town, but that by me setting off 10 minutes earlier to get to town, I'm actually helping in a way to reduce down carbon emissions because we have increased other people's ability to cycle to work, then I'm like, oh, okay, like I, kind of feel, I kind of feel good about this, in, or at least it dampens down the inconvenience. Do you understand what I mean?
1: Yes, yeah. And I, I think uh, uh, also uh, we, we could encourage people to think a little bit uh, outside their own kind of narrow uh, view. Again, I don't mean this in a negative way, but sometimes people don't realise that they could do things differently. Uh, sometimes they genuinely can't. Uh, sometimes they could do if given a bit of help so again using the cycle lanes one as, as an example um there's a lot of people that that have no choice but to use a car that's that's for sure i mean he, here in exeter we're a small town small city but with a rural area around it it's very hard to get anywhere in the rural area without a car um within the city um it's actually a, a much easier than a lot of people think to get around by bike for example i i haven't had a car for two years uh in that first period I was actually quite surprised about how easy it was to live without a car. I just use my bike and uh, public transport uh, and and trains. Uh, Some people, I think a lot of people could do more like that. I recognise a lot of people could not do that. But those who have no choice, uh, uh, their lives would be easier if those who who do have a choice could, could make a different choice. But often those people could only make that choice if they're helped along the way by having yes, safe cycling routes and that kind of thing. So it's not all down to individual people. It's about helping changing the system to help people make these these choices.
0: How much do individuals' decisions about what they do, you know, one person remembering to turn the lights off or putting the, the lights on a timer or switching to a hybrid car or an electric vehicle, how much is that going to make an impact even if you start to scale that en masse across an entire population and how much of it, is from other things that are more out of our control, so perhaps things that are in industry, business, controlled by the government, uh, transportation, owned by companies and stuff like that, that as opposed to individuals?
1: So the uh, yeah, the, the, the small actions like turning the lights off and changing the energy light bulbs and that kind of thing, yeah, have, have have a have a small impact it, it is system level change like entirely different energy sources uh, so not having uh, coal-fired power stations having instead uh, renewables or nuclear uh, or whatever so that's a sort of system level change which uh uh would need to be you know, p- people would would obviously have to buy into that as, as, as consumers and uh uh, and it needs to be set, set up in a way which is not disadvantaging uh, people. So you kind of, yeah, it's, it's seeing yourself as as part of the bigger uh, bigger picture picture, really. Yeah.
0: What's your thoughts on nuclear energy?
1: Personally speaking, uh, I uh, would be surprised if we could uh, achieve the targets without nuclear energy. That's a personal view, not as an expert. Uh, you know, I'm a climate modeller. Uh, this is just from you know me seeing the debates from, from where I, from where I sit. Uh, I see arguments which uh, say it can be done without nuclear energy. Uh, so you know, I'm speaking as a non-expert here. I'd be surprised if we could do it without without nuclear energy. I think the problem is so severe that we need to throw everything at it, basically. We can't rule anything out.
0: That's my view. Why do you think it is that there is a quite a big swath of climate um activist people who dislike nuclear energy?
1: I think that that links to the yeah the the the, uh, the, uh, the origins of the green movement uh, who uh, who traditionally uh, were sort of you know, suspicious of any, any any kind of technology uh, and of course you know there have been horrendous nuclear accidents in in the past of course uh, the uh, technology is very different now and uh, the uh, new nuclear. Uh, power stations are are being designed and built to a yeah much much higher standard and uh the risk assessments are done to account, account for climate change as well yeah accounting for very high temperatures uh, uh oh so nuclear
0: plants that are being created now are being future proofed against potential higher global temperatures
1: exactly uh exactly wow. yes yeah i mean that's yeah. so
0: sophisticated um mm. i had alex epstein on the show quite a while ago the moral case for fossil mm. fuels so he's a philosopher that's talking about and um I don't understand enough about the impacts of different types of fuels to be able to kind of dig into his data. But what I did take away from it was uh, a surprise at how much most climate activist groups seem to be very averse to nuclear energy, which is, you know, aside from a couple of very big accidents which occurred on version 0.1, uh, reactors and plants that were very unsafe. Um, it 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 surprises me that that isn't just what everybody is throwing throwing their efforts at. Um,
1: I, I mean, it it, it it is true that the high level waste is, is a long term problem. Uh, that you're kind of yeah you're, you're bequeathing that to future generations. But the it's it's a relatively small amount. That, uh, you know, in the in the grand scheme of things. But it but it does exist. So. Part of the concern is about what we do with this stuff, which is going to be around for, um, uh, for, for, for thousands of years, uh, as well as the obvious con- uh, uh, concern based on past experience, um, or, or, or past accidents. But uh, again, so this is again, why it's such a, such a controversial topic and you get very, very polarised views on it.
0: Richard Betts, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date with what you do, why should they go?
1: Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, Richard A. Betts uh, on Twitter. Uh, you can also uh, look at what the, uh, the Met Office and the University of Exeter are putting out. I work at both of these, uh, these places. You could, you could look at the, the technical report of the Climate Change Risk Assessment, which I, I led, which was published this year. Uh, so look that up. It's the uh, UK Climate Risk uh, it's a website. Uh, so you can look there for some of my latest work. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm active on social media. Uh, so I'm always happy to have a conversation about this. I just talk to anybody who's interested in climate change. So
0: happy to have a discussion. Thank you very much for tuning in. You might be listening, but not subscribed. And if that's you, then you are in my bad books. So fix it this second. Open the podcast app that you've got, press subscribe, and you will never miss an episode every Monday, Thursday, and Saturday when they get uploaded and it supports the show, and it makes me very happy indeed. So go and do it. I'll see you next time.